With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Chris McShane. Chris, usually we start these episodes with a pithy Mets-related opening question in a segment that I blatantly stole from the Football Ramble. However, there's no time this week, because we have to get right into it. This is episode 108 of Amazing Avenue Audio. And we start, unsurprisingly, with Zach Wheeler's ulnar collateral ligament, or intact one, comma, lack thereof. We'll get to the fallout from this and the impact on the Mets' 2015 season, and both are substantial. But with news coming out in recent days that he pitched through pain for most of 2014, had PRP therapy, skipped a pen and almost missed a start in August, in which he threw 103 pitches and 5-plus. Our opening question, which is about the Mets, but is not particularly pithy, 
is could this have been avoided? And if you were expecting a rant from me, I will just uh, sublet that out to our readers. We'll start with an email from I. I can't really say. I think he's the only Michael that's been emailing us regularly lately. I haven't gone back and looked. So I guess for now, until I can get the necessary information, he's just one of our not-so-many Michaels. Hello, esteemed MLB network analysts and other hosts. This Tommy John thing comes down to one thing. Terry Collins and Dan Worthen cannot be trusted with our young pitchers. They push these first-year pitchers like they're five-year veterans. The fact that Zach Wheeler was allowed to throw 114 pitches in his first game last year when established guys like Max Scherzer were pulled after 90 is nothing short of egregious. Matt Harvey threw 123 pitches in five innings during a meaningless game in May of 2013. It's unacceptable. Every year, our pitchers just about leave the leagues. In pitches per inning, pitches per game, relief appearances, and other dubious workload categories. All of this during losing seasons, where there is no reason whatsoever to push these kids. Sandy and his high-priced staff need to take their heads out of the sand and handle the situation immediately because it won't stop. Curious for your thoughts, Mike. So, Chris McShane. Yes. Who, if anyone, is to blame here, and how much blame are we assigning? Uh, jeez, I don't know. Evolution of the human body, the, the rules of baseball. I think I blame Tommy Bond on our, uh, on our internal list, because he was the first pitcher to really sort of push up against the rule that you can only throw underhand, trying to get away with as, like, as high an arm slot as possible. Yeah, no, I, it's so, I understand the frustration and the points about pitch count are valid. Um, you know, that's, that's something that they've gone high with. Uh, they're not the only team to have done it. I think you look at you Darvish and, you know, he was kind of in a similar situation. He pitched extremely well. He threw a lot of pitches in many games. Um, but I, I kind of end up going back to the way I felt about Johan Santana and his shoulder after the no-hitter, where there was something that existed that was a problem, uh, and, and it was probably going to break. I don't know if you could say you could have prevented uh, Wheeler's, you know, elbow from blowing up, essentially. Um, given that he had already kind of gone down that path, I, I think maybe you could have prolonged the amount of time in between when the pain started and then when the surgery ultimately happened. Uh, you know, I think, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm deferring to Grant Brisby here a little bit. Uh, Damn it, Brisby. Hey, he... Uh, you, you have to, but uh, <laughs> but you know Texas went a different way with it. They shut Darvish down uh, a little earlier in the process. You know they were out of it last year, and ultimately he he rests. He comes back. He tries to pitch in the spring game, and it just doesn't work. And you know he just had his surgery today. So I don't know. I mean the first uh, tidbit that I had heard. Uh, if I can use the phrase from someone familiar with the team's thinking, was in late 2013 with Wheeler. So, you know, I mean, obviously we've heard publicly that it was something they were aware of for all of last season, so that makes sense that he might have first started bringing that up uh, or they might have noticed something with him late in 2013. Um, 
but I guess that from that point that you start to think that it might be an issue, I'm not sure how much you can manage it. I don't know, you know, I don't know how much the doctors think you can manage it. I don't know, you know, it's a little bit beyond my expertise uh, once you get to that stage. You know, I, I think ultimately the goal here is to have pitchers not get to the point that their elbow starts to hurt. Well, there's pitching, there's pitching hurt or playing hurt and there's playing or pitching injured. And that's a difficult line to sort of parse sometimes. I think with Wheeler, with all pitchers, it's sort of an issue of could this have been avoided entirely? No. Could you have delayed it for a period of time? Maybe. I mean, there was concern about Wheeler's arm action. I think we back when the pod was a baby, even going back to 2013, we had an email about that. You know, sort of comparing it to Harvey's arm action, and Harvey was the first one to break in this case. But for guys like Harvey and Wheeler, really all pitchers, I think, I'm not even a Twitter MD, but I, I think they're a, a good way to maybe frame the discussion is there are classes of pitchers. There are guys who are going to have Tommy John surgery one way or the other at some point, and those guys usually end up ha- having it early because there's something in their mechanics at the time or something in their genetics at the time that caused that to happen. And it's just, it's a ticking time bomb if you want to use that, uh, I don't think particularly useful metaphor otherwise. Then there's guys that are going to have it eventually because there's just so many bullets in the human arm and they throw really hard or like like Zach Wheeler, they sit 95 and throw an 89 mile an hour slider one out every six pitches. But there's things you can do to kick that can down the road a little bit, maybe. You know, Johan Santana's shoulder fell off in his 30s. It didn't happen when he was 27. Um, And if you look at the actual workload, and I'm not a pitcher abuse point guy. I don't think 110 pitches, 120 pitches in a vacuum is bad. The number itself is not evil. I think we've almost, you know, since the days of Dusty Baker throwing Mike, you know, Mark Pryor 140 pitches in a 9 nothing game, or just 140 pitches as much as possible, we've come almost in the uh, too far in the other direction, at least at the major league level. I think there are guys out there that can throw more pitches than they are maybe allowed to, but in specific circumstances. You have to be able to monitor how your pitcher is pitching, especially a young arm. I know we want to teach guys like Matt Harvey and Zach Will, you know, sort of that old cliche. Well, they have to learn how to pitch deep into games. They have to be able to get through six innings, seven innings. You know, Keith Hernandez in the broadcast will often sort of opine that, you know, in Ron, Ronnie too, certainly to start saying, you know, you want to finish that inning. You want to, the, the, the Budweiser in the clubhouse, which I'm sure they had plenty of in the eighties, you know, only taste, <laughs> tastes better if they get to finish out that inning. And yes, that's all in well and good in a perfect world. These guys are going to be going seven innings every start or seven plus, but when they're not and their stuff is declining in games and how many times we see Zach Wheeler sitting like 92 93 with no command in the sixth inning of a game in the seventh inning of a game well up over 100 pitches those are when you accelerate these type of injuries that's when that kind of stuff can happen now would it have happened at some point anyway would it have happened this spring anyway I don't know but 
it worries me going forward. This isn't hindsight is 2020. I was having these conversations with people on Twitter and on the podcast in 2013 about Harvey, in 2014 about Wheeler. So going forward, you know, guys like, you know, Syndergaard and Mats who might be throwing meaningful innings for this team now this year. It's like, can you really trust this field staff that's managing for their jobs as much as they were in 2014, as much as they were in 2013? And the long-term future of this team, given the well-known financial issues, given the offense such as it is, the young pitching has to be good and it has to be healthy. For this to be more than an 82-win team. So I'll ask you, Chris, do you think, and this isn't about Terry Collins as a manager, I shouldn't say it. It is about him as a manager. Is, is he a quote-unquote good manager? Is Dan Worthen is a quote-unquote good pitching coach? Are they the right fit for this Mets team? Hmm. I mean, I'm not willing to uh, to say completely that they aren't. It, you know, obviously they have a track record over the last few years in the way that they use pitchers. Um, I don't. I don't think they're incapable of adjusting uh, to, you know, if the team decides to change anything about the way it uses these pitchers. I know, you know, one of the things that was kind of popular to talk about today was, uh, at least on the Internet, um, you know, whether or not they were operating independently of the front office in terms of how the pitchers were used. And obviously you would think over a long span of time that couldn't possibly be the case that they, you know, they in-game, they might have a certain amount of freedom to go about their jobs as they wish, but over a longer span of time, you know, you had Alderson defending uh, today the, the way they had used Wheeler. Uh, and, and basically, I guess the, the short version of what he said was essentially that if a guy is a major league pitcher, he's going to pitch and, you know, at a, at a certain point, there's not so much that you can control. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not, I, I guess the reason I hesitate to say that they're not the right fit and somebody else is, uh, is because I'm not sure it's, it's kind of like looking for a new manager in general. Like I'm not entirely sure what makes the, you know, the right fit, what makes the kind of the perfect guy to handle young pitching. Um, you know, being that there's only 30 major league managers in existence, uh, it's it's tough. Other than looking at a guy who's done it before, and you know, kind of has a track record of it, um, I'm not so sure. You know, what way you go with it? And it's a good point. It's sort of who's the right. It's sort of the devil you know, I guess. But I think. And look, it, we're talking about, it's not just Hardwood. We're not even talking about Josh Edgett, who's also having Tommy John surgery and, and doesn't really fit. You know, he's just a guy who maybe his elbow is just going to go no matter what. Cause I don't think he'd really say he was abused. He spent a lot of time in AAA last year for one thing. Right. Oh, yeah. And he, I mean, the last few years, he bounced around levels. Uh, you know, when he was in the big leagues, it's not like he was pitching every, he, he wasn't Carlos Torres. He wasn't Scott Rice. Right. And he was not even, you know, Jay Nur, you know, everyone panicking today about Jay Nur's familiar with velocity. You know, that's a guy who's, had a past uh past issues with his elbow as well. 
done nothing as serious as a torn UCL. So if all of a sudden, you know, he went under the knife for Tommy John surgery, I don't know if it would be a surprise. I don't know the edge is a surprise. I don't know that anybody's a surprise at this point. And I don't know if they had managed Wheeler differently last year, you know, skipped him on that August 20th start, you know, pulled, you know, sort of loose or sort of tightened the reins a little bit down the stretch when he was going 110 pitches every start in a basically lost season. Um, and a lot of the criticism of Collins sort of like managing for 78 wins versus 74 wins to save his job is a little bit of projection by myself and others that weren't, that aren't thrilled with him as, as a manager in general and uh, things, other things he does beyond uh, pitching and, you know, starting pitching and bullpen management. But, you know, these things happened. They're data points. You know, he's burned through a lot of left-handed relievers. You know, he's, he may break Carlos Torres and J.R. Familia this year, you know, two very important relievers in this bullpen. Now, I don't think you can do anything about it now, but, you know, if it's, if they're at the periphery of a playoff race again, he thinks 83 wins is going to get his, his, uh, extension picked up, his option year picked up. You know, that is a moral hazard. It's textbook. Um, you know, this is the last, let's be honest. This is, and one of the reasons we postulate these things is this is the last major league job Terry Collins is ever going to have one way or the other. There's not a great market for, you know, managers in their upper sixties, mid to late sixties that haven't had a, a ton of major league success. You know, he's not Tony La Russa. By any stretch of the imagination. Now, is all this sort of projection fair to Collins? I don't think it is, but again, it may just be a case of his particular skill set, his strengths and weaknesses not matching up with the rosters he's been given. And some of that's on the front office, some of that's on ownership, certainly. And I don't think we'll ever really know what goes on between Collins and Alderson. It'll be a, certainly a much int- more interesting book than the one we're, uh, getting the book report from on by Adam Rubin on Twitter for the last week. But it's a concern. It's a concern. I think, you know, that I've been vocalizing at least as long as this podcast has been going on. But the past is the past is the past. Certainly going forward. It sure sounds like Dylan G is now in the opening day rotation. Rafael Montero is headed to the pen, sort of in that Dylan G-ish role, I would imagine. Um, you wrote about this this morning, Chris. Is this a good idea? Is this the best idea for this team? Is this... What's going on here? Yeah, I would not necessarily say it's the best idea for the team. <laughs> um, I get it. I get the extra year of control. I hope that's all we're talking about here. Uh, you know, I worry a little bit that it, that it won't be. You know, if we're talking about Super 2, again, uh, I understand completely if people have lost their patience with that. You know, you have Matt Harvey back. Uh, if anything, Zach Wheeler teaches us that you just don't know uh, when it comes to the pitching. You know, we know we have Matt Harvey right now. And hopefully we'll have him for years. And you know, that elbow will hold up and that won't be a concern again. I'm certainly not going to go start to start with him wondering about the health of his elbow. Um, but he's here. 
and you kind of have to capitalize on that while he is. You know, we we were hoping that Wheeler would turn into maybe the second or third best pitcher on the team, uh, and we saw signs that he could be. But you know, if he had gone and repeated what he did last year, uh, and and we had talked about this a little bit on on Twitter or in on the internal list, I forget where it was, but. Uh, you know, median versus 75th percentile outcomes. You know, obviously there's a significant loss there with Wheeler if he did take that step forward. But we have Harvey. Uh, you know, uh, DeGrom is there. Nice is there. And as much as I'm not so sure how long he holds up and, you know, whether or not he can be above average, you know, he and Cologne are, are respectable pitchers. Uh, and G can be one too, but that's where you look at Syndergaard and Mats and you say, okay, if there's a guy who you think might be able to come in and be that above average pitcher. And, you know, they don't necessarily have to be a top 30 starter in Major League Baseball, but if they could be, you know, a, a notch above average uh, and slot in behind DeGrom and Harvey, then the team looks a lot better. Uh, you know, I know like uh, G is a very likable guy. He's easy to root for. You know, seems like a very down to earth, polite uh, guy. He clearly wasn't thrilled about going to the bullpen, but he wasn't going to be the guy to make a stink about it. You know, he, I think he was honest in his answers, and uh, you know, any starting pitcher is not going to love that move. Um, but you see him, you know, for what he is. Uh, people bring up the stretch that he had from that game at Yankee Stadium through the end of that uh, you know 2013 season, and then what he did very early last year, and you know it, in that span of time he pitched probably above his head, uh, and that's they're saying the same thing about Jeremy Hefner, right? And look, over 20 starts if Dylan G, hey, if over five starts if he can look like that. Uh, you know, to start this year, that would be great. But the problem is, if he if he looks like that for five starts, you're getting him for the fifteen after that. However, they well, look. That, that's true. So it's I don't know. What do you for the absolute best case scenario for the Mets in in the long run over the course of the season? Um, I guess you, you certainly don't want to root against him because you know you need him to pitch well to win those games early, but. We know what he is. Uh, I was it was a long-winded way for me to say that, but we we know what Dylan G is. Uh, and right now, with two pitchers who you think can be well above average, and three pitchers who you think could be average-ish, you know that's not a terrible rotation. But if you could kind of tip that so that you have three pitchers who you think could be well above average, and two who can be average-ish. Um, you feel a lot better about the season. And I was just, I never got around to actually writing up the piece, but I uh, was kind of curious about the experiment of Dylan G as a relief pitcher in which he would only have to see hitters once, uh, and maybe twice, but, you know, most times you only see him once and what that would look like. I think as far as G goes relative to the 2015 Mets, and I've, I've said this, I think, on Twitter a number of ways, but I'm going to put it this way. The 2015 Mets in general, and specifically 
regards to Zach Wheeler, there's an upside bet here. You know, this team as comprised, you know, with Wheeler, with a healthy Wheeler going into opening day 2015. Is there a low 80s win team, probably? Just on sort of like median talent. But they have a lot of young players, guys that can certainly overperform, Wheeler being one of them. Um, but they're betting on at least a few of those guys doing it. And if there was going to be no difference between Wheeler in 2015 and whatever G is going to be in 2015, that's already one of those pieces off the board for that. So I think they need to bet on upside again here. And and I'm going to use Pakoda because I can get percentile projections with Pakoda. It's one projection system. And, you know, with individual guys, I I don't like just slapping a number on it, but the, at least the ranges here, the t- every 10% gives you a an idea of what sort of their potential is. G's 70th percentile projection gets him near league average once you consider the park and environment. Syndergaard's 70th percentile is a 3.1 ERA. Now there's playing time issues there in the way Pakoda does projections. So I can only look at the rate stats. That gets exacerbated further if you if you look at Matt's. But, you know, Collins and Alderson coming out and saying, yeah, G's the next guy up, but we'll consider Montero is interesting to me. Because that may not be, I don't know how serious they're going to be in that regard, but if you're considering Montero to not consider Syndergaard or Mats is sort of a wink and a tug. You know, don't look over here behind the curtain, but it's a service time manipulation. Though interestingly enough, Pakoda loves Montero best of all. But if you're going to consider Rafael Montero for that spot, you have to consider Syndergaard and Matt. And if you're not doing it, you're doing it solely for service time reasons. And look, if it's just till April 20th, I'm fine with that. But I don't think that's going to be the case. What what are these three pitchers, G, Syndergaard, and Matt, going to show you in three starts at their respective levels that gives you any new information? You know, G hangs around for half a season with a 3.9 to 4.1 ERA. You know, how much time is too long given how tight this wild card race looks on, you know, March 18th? I don't know the answer to that. I really don't, but they, you know, they've targeted this year. I should say all along. I think it was originally 2014, but whatever. Then they lost Matt Harvey. You can't, you know, pitchers get hurt. It's what they do. Pitchers break. It's what they do. One of my favorite Toby Hyde quotes. Now, whether they could have made him break later, I don't know. But he's broken. And they have to deal with that outcome. If it becomes, you know, I get it. You know, I think Adam Rubin referred to it as a, uh, it would be a slap in the face to Dylan G. If they started Syndergaard or Matt's over him, which is a nice narrative. But they were shopping G for five months. And they're going to non-tender him in the offseason. You know, what's really a slap in the face at that point? You know, what's the real slap in the face here? And you're right. G knows. He knows it's a business. I mean, I guess it's different when he's going to the pen because the Mets had five established starters versus, you know, prospects jumping the line or whatever. But the team's got to win this year on a, for a, a number of reasons. And... 
if Syndergaard, if they start Syndergaard April 20th and he completely blows up, at least you know that now. And the difference between him blowing up and G just kind of being G is not the difference for this team between making the playoffs and not, or not. You know, if this is the Washington Nationals and they don't have Tanner Rourke, we'll imagine that for a second. And, uh, let's say Fister goes down for the season. Yeah. You plug Dylan G in there over Noah Syndergaard because that team's, you know, you just need someone that's going to hold down the fort, take the ball every fifth day, be a little bit below league average. And it doesn't really matter. You just need that surety. But the Mets need to bet on upside. And, you know, we know what Dylan G is. Could Dylan G get some bad bit luck and some home run to fly ball luck and be a league average pitcher, maybe a tick above? Yes. But even that doesn't really move the needle too much for the Mets. That's still 2015 Wheeler. Or 2014 Wheeler, really. They need, and again, you don't project this. I say this over and over again. You don't project this. But you need a Jacob DeGrom. And the guys that have the chance to turn into Jacob DeGrom are Noah Syndergaard and Steven Matz. Before we move on, I do... These things get talked about in abstractions in a lot of cases. But, you know, this kind of sucks for Zach Wheeler. Yeah. He's, he's a he's a real pitcher, and he's going to miss an entire season of baseball. You know, we sort of look at these guys as you know assets, or as uh, Joe Sheehan would say, strat cards. Um, a lot of the time, but it's kind of kind of crappy. And I like watching Zach Wheeler pitch. I'm going to miss that part of it certainly. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a confession to. Uh... And I know fantasy is not your favorite topic, but mm, um, yeah, no, it's not. In a keep seven league, I chose this year to keep you Darvish uh, after you know knowing that he was going to miss the year, and I decided to name my team. I'll be missing you with the 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 team. Yeah, yeah, yeah we get we get it, we get it. Yes, yeah. So you'll be missing Zach. I will be. I will be too. I thought you were going to say you also kept Zach Wheeler. Then I was going to say, Chris, no one cares about your fantasy team. <laughs> we do care about what you did uh, down in Port St. Lucie, though. So we'll move on to our spring training review. All of this happened after uh, Chris McShane got back from spring training. And there's actually a funny story related to Zach Wheeler's elbow issues that I will someday tell, not on the podcast. So happier times. Let's go. Let's go back in time a little bit to last week. Yes. Who is a guy that now that you've seen him live, it can be from the the major league side or the minor league side. Who's a guy who opened your eyes a little bit after seeing him live? Uh, I was Syndergaard. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of an easy answer. It, it is, but it, it, I, there was a guy who I walked away saying, uh, "Just uh, wow, uh, it was him." You know, I had seen him uh, my time in Port St. Lucie. You know, my few days each spring started when he was first uh, getting to step camp a couple of years ago. So, you know, I've brought this up before where I, I was fortunate enough to see his first bullpen in the Mets uniform in any capacity. Uh, you know, I saw him throw probably twice that first year, just in bullpens last year. I, I 
think I probably saw him pitch in a game, um, but my memory is not perfect on that. But the last day of the trip this year uh, that I, I wouldn't have seen this outing if not for the weather up here and flight cancellations and modifications of the dates of the trip uh, on both ends. It, it, he was in Jupiter against the Marlins. Yes, it's early in spring training, but they rolled out a pretty decent lineup. You know, Giancarlo Stanton was out there, uh, and, and many of the team's other projected regulars were out there. And, uh, you know, Matt Harvey got the start, and he was he was okay, you know, by Matt Harvey's standards. But Syndergaard just came in, and, man, that way, it was impressive. I mean, the fastball looked overpowering. The breaking stuff looked unfair. It was just uh, that in terms of the actual performance from the trip, that was the biggest takeaway. Um, and I know that it, you know, it's not been there every single spring training start, and obviously you know, things weren't perfect in Vegas last year. Uh, I didn't get to see Matt's pitch against competition uh, over the course of my trip. But, but yeah, it, it was Syndergaard who just kind of, for me, stole the show. Um, if I'm looking on the other side of the ball, I, I don't know that he really factors into things at any point in the near future. Uh, but Alex Castellanos made surprisingly good contact. You know, we'll not- talk about him briefly in the infield preview, actually. Yeah. So it, it was, you know, not not anything that jumped off the page. Um, it's funny. Two years ago, I remember tweeting about Marlon Bird looking great in batting practice and dealing with sarcastic responses. And I, I probably brought this up before, too. But I wish I stuck to my guns more on that and said, no, he's, he looks great. So I'm not saying Castellanos is the next Marlon Bird to have a you know a monster or above-average season and turn into uh, somebody you can trade. But he was just somebody who I, I said, oh, he doesn't just have a last name that sounds like Rob's or looks like Rob's, but, you know, he, he's making good contact in games here. Okay, best craft beer you had while in St. Lucie? Ah, uh, jeez. Um, do you remember any of them, for starters? That's you know, no, I do. I do. I was probably a little bit better about overall consumption uh, while I was there than, than I might have been in the past. Um... I, I don't I don't remember. I I, I I didn't have that many, but I don't remember what they were. You gotta keep trying that stuff on untapped or something. Yeah, yeah, no, that that would be a good way to go. I'll give Vine and Barley the usual plug, though. I mean, if, if that's if that's your thing, that's the place to go. Clearly, it was memorable. It, the, the place is. <laughs> Favorite spring training anecdote you can actually say publicly on the podcast. Huh. Let's see. From this year only. I don't know. I didn't have that moment you know, going back last year or the year before. The year before when, when Latroy Hawkins uh, joked with David Wright about not getting him released by standing in for a batting practice. There was nothing like that. 
this here. Give me if you, give me a minute on that. I'll see if I can think of something. I'll say I'll say mine. Um, I think it's probably. Uh, I was it uh I think it was Dacomo? Remember it was Dacomo or or Borkanoff? Uh tweeting out that one of the Mets beat writers was going to support Arsenal because of the logo. And then he was gonna support the other team because uh he liked ham. And me immediately guessing it was Mark Craig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that, that that that's definitely good. And I thought of my anecdote. Mm-hmm. So I have a real answer. Um, so I'm sitting down. The, the other team being West Ham United, of course. Yes. The the press room is an interesting place. Uh, there, you know, it's, so you walk in and it, uh, you know, there's to the right, there's four rows of seats that are pretty much assigned to, you know, major outlets and their writers. Uh, so they sit over there and then on the left side of the room, there's four circular tables and it, you know, kind of has like a school cafeteria feel to it, at least in that part. And it's not that big of a room, but you kind of have the two sides. So you have the, the writers and a few like, you know, fully professional photographers who are, who are over on one side. And then at the tables you have, uh, uh, you know, over the three years I've gone uh, this year, I walked in and Ted Berg was there. Uh, last year it was Andrew Pisano, Matt Cerrone. The year before that it was, uh, Cerrone and, and the Mets blog crew. I think, you know, Mike Barron was there. Uh, but you also have the SNY people, uh, who, who end up sitting at the tables. And that includes Gary, Keith, and Ron. Uh, last year there was a conversation that was alluded to, uh, by a few <laughs> people in the room. And it was Gary, Keith, and Ron having their first sit down, uh, before doing any broadcast for the season. And it was highly entertaining and none of it can be repeated anywhere. <laughs> But this year, um, so I'm sitting at one of the tables. You know, seeing Ted was a nice surprise. I didn't know he was going to be there. That was that was on day one. I think it was my second to last day on this trip, and I'm sitting at the table. And you know, the way it works with the tables, since they're not assigned like the uh, like everybody else, you kind of go in. You get there in the morning. You try to get as close to an electrical outlet as you can. You plop your stuff down. It's the only place in the world outside of my home. That I feel completely comfortable leaving a, you know, a MacBook and a and a camera and lenses, you know, that nobody's going to screw with your stuff. Uh, so you put it down, you claim your spot, and then you go out and do stuff. And you know, as people who have followed probably know, I take a lot of photos when I'm down there. So I go, put the computer down, go out, take photos, do all that, come back in to just kind of take a look at what I've got and everything, and you know, it's lunchtime. So I'm there and my table just so happened to be empty. And, uh, Ron Darling comes up and he says, you know, he's got his lunch in his hand. And he says, Oh, you mind if I sit here? <laughs> and I go, well, of course not. <laughs> so he sits down and introduces himself. Hi, I'm Ron. And I have, I have a mouthful of food. So <laughs> right. I, I just hold up a finger and like, wait uh, one second. And, uh, so I, I finished the food, in my, you know, that I'm chewing, and I introduce myself. Amazingly, he didn't choke to death immediately. Right. So we we go through the pleasantries and everything, and we're, we're kind of talking. And he had just done his first play-by-play uh, fill-in 
uh, I think the day before. So we're kind of talking about that. He was rocking some really nice, like, tortoiseshell Harry Potter glasses on today's broadcast, I guess. Oh, yeah, he was, he was wearing those uh, for, the, for the conversation. So then, you know, we're talking, and you know, he, he says nice things about Amazing Avenue, and I'm complimenting him on, you know, on his play-by-play the day before and all that. And, uh, you know, we're talking a little bit of baseball. And then Joe McElvain walks in comes up immediately and says hello to Ron and then introduces himself to me. And I'm sitting here like, this is insane. <laughs> so he introduces himself and he sits down and they proceed to talk about the backstories of the Darling trade and the Hernandez trade. Um, you know, it. Ron was actually, you know, in a, in a spot where it was like a refresher for him, on, I think, on some of the details of how, <laughs> just how everything came about. Uh, for him to get traded to the Mets, you know. So it's, it's this fascinating conversation, and then Ron starts getting into, you know, some of it, the, what it was like when he was playing in his minor league career, and, and when we talked double-A baseball, because, as you know, in Connecticut, uh, especially, you know, a, a few years back, double-A baseball was everywhere. Um, so it, it was just, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes tops, talking baseball with with those two guys uh you know that that was a cool moment that was some you know and you know any any time anybody from the booth wants to sit down at my lunch table they are absolutely welcome I like how it took you five minutes to remember that actually happening <laughs> <laughs> well my i'm on the spot here I, I you know yeah i didn't give you any prep for this that's fine <laughs> but yeah that that was it that seems like a good place to end because that's a very spring training story and like nothing else. Any other tidbits or stuff that our listeners should be aware of outside of obviously to read your interviews with Matt Bowman, Pedro Lopez, and Paul De Podesta? Yeah, uh, yeah, Lopez. I like how you you've interviewed Paul De Podesta three times now. I've not interviewed him once. I, the first one you scheduled, I was on my honeymoon, <laughs> and then well, you've cornered him at spring the last two years. No, three years in spring. So yeah. four, four interviews, actually. Four interviews with Paul DePodesta. Yes. It, no, and uh, certainly grateful for him, you know, taking the time to do that. Um, well, all these times. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, those those chats, the, our, our annual spring training chat at this point, uh, is definitely worth checking out. Uh, if you've seen the last two, you, you kind of know what to expect. And I think... This one has more Gabriel Yanoa questions because of me. <laughs> yeah, well, no, actually, he brought him up. I didn't. Uh, the, well, there you go. So I asked Lopez about Yanoa. Yeah, uh, that was because of me. <laughs> uh, yes, that that was. But and, and uh, I, I kind of went in with with high expectations uh, when it came to talking to Lopez, based on things that that you had said and you know just general things that were out there about him. Uh, but man, he's. He's polished. I mean, I know he likes to talk too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. He was. Um, he was impressive. It, I could. I could see. You know, just in talking to him, I can see what it is about his personality that makes him a good fit to manage. Uh, and I, I came out of that and thought, you know, that that guy could be a major league manager. You know, uh, he. I don't know. He just had it. It's hard to describe, but 
but yeah, I, I was impressed. Um, so yeah, I recommend checking that out. Uh, and you know, I think the interview was, was pretty good and, and what came out of it was pretty good, but, but yeah, the one thing that, that I didn't really write extensively was just, you know, how, how well he came off. Um, and I haven't had an inter- a chance in these three years to talk to Backman. Um, you know, it's kind of come up. I, I saw him out at Duffy's one night down there, and he, you know, we we chatted for a minute, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I'll talk anytime." And I mean, of course, you know, of course he will. But that hasn't actually happened. <laughs> so I I don't have a like a point of comparison. But if you're into the minor league managing, you know. Uh, which, prospects. which we, I imagine a disproportionate amount of our listeners at least certainly are. It, yes. <laughs> so, uh, it, yeah, Lopez, Lopez was impressive. And who is the, um, I, not, I didn't have a chance to speak to him or anything, but who, um, who's the younger manager? I think he managed St. Lucie last year. Is he still around? Ryan Ellis. Yes, is he still around? Yes, he is the short season hitting coordinator this year, I think. Okay. Yeah, because uh, uh, Lahare got promoted from Kingsport to Savannah, and the Savannah manager, whose name now escapes me, got promoted from Savannah to St. Lucie. By the way, podcast listeners, I don't know if you can hear that. Uh, background noise. If you can, it's the neighbors who like to move furniture around. No, I, I can't hear it, so I'm assuming they can't hear it. Oh, well. Okay. Proof will be in the pudding, I suppose. Or yes. in the podcast, as it were. If you go back and turn it up, that's what that was. <laughs> okay, I've had cars going by the window very loudly for the last few minutes anyway. Move on now, because we can't top that Ron Darling anecdote. To our infield preview. We've done starting pitching, we've done the bullpen, we've done the outfield, which really just leaves the infield, and I guess we'll do catchers next week. So we'll go around the diamond, starting at first base with Lucas Duda, who is in games now after missing the first week or two of spring with a intercostal strain, the only Mets player thus far to fall prey to that annual late February, early March ailment. That was the injury you thought was going to sort it all out for Dylan G. I did. There's usually a rash of intercostal strains. I've got it a little more under control this year. I wish it had been an intercostal strain, though. Oh, yeah. I guess that goes without saying. Dude, we're sort of probably penciling in Lucas Duda for something close to his 2014 season, if not quite those exact heights. Is there some downside risk here we're maybe ignoring? I mean, I'm pretty high on Duda, so I'm I'm with that general expectation that he'll do something as good as or, or close to what he did last year. Um, but there is a downside. You know, you, you look back and a year ago, it wasn't entirely clear that he was better than Ike Davis. And right now you look at Ike Davis and say, yeah, maybe he has that Billy Bean platoon uh, effect kind of year. But the Pirates non-tendered him, you know. I mean, it, it was 
you know, that that's the kind of player that we weren't entirely sure that Lucas Duda was going to be better than at that point. Um, but, you know, you look at what he's done. He did, you know, in 2010, he only got 92 plate appearances, but since then, He's got a 123 OPS plus. You know that that's not a world beater, uh, but it's it's pretty good. So last year was the breakout because he did as well as he did for a longer period of time. Uh, you know he had never played that much and played that well in any one season until last year. Uh, so I think if he comes back down to earth, it's not going to be awful. And I think having Mayberry and Kadire around helps kind of keep him away from left-handed pitching that he just doesn't let's hope so <laughs> right i mean there's no guarantee that collins it, you know if i'm going to get on collins for stuff it, it's things like that uh, you know overplaying justin turner way back when uh you know back when he wasn't an 850 ops hitter <laughs> um and, and platoon type situations so yeah, there, there's a chance that Duda goes back to that, but I think he remains at least a, a notch or two above league average as a hitter. As long-time listeners of this podcast will know, I'm not afraid to admit when I'm wrong, given mea culpa, which is a problem because I'm wrong often, and it takes up a lot of time on the podcast when I do that. But last year, at some point, I think... We got a lot of emails about the Duda Davis situation in the spring, or really over the winter in the spring at the beginning of the year. I think at some point in time I just said, look, in a best case scenario, perfect world, neither of these guys are the opening day first baseman in 2015. So here's my mea culpa. I'm feeling really good about Lucas Duda being the opening day first baseman in 2015. Yeah, he has his issues. He can't hit lefties. That's easily mitigated by the presence of Michael Kadire and John Mayberry Jr. on the roster. But we'll reiterate again this week, John Mayberry Jr. should still never play first base. That's that was fine. not that was not pretty. And, uh, and Kadire and Kadire can play it. He's you know, he's yeah. capable there. So even if he's more in line, like a triple slash closer to his career lines, you know, he doesn't quite have as much over the fence power as he did last year. You know, some of those balls find the warning track or doubles. You know, he's more of a four fifty slugging guy. Over 140-ish games, mostly against the vast majority of which against right-handed pitching. That's a nice enough player, and he's turned himself into a decent defensive first baseman. He's he's acceptable there, maybe even solid. I like Lucas Duda. I'm going to say it. I'm I'm fairly maybe it's not 30 home runs, maybe it's more like 25, but I'm I'm all in on the Lucas Duda experience. And it really has to work out because there's no backup plan here. Certainly no organizational depth. And while you might get Terry Collins to platoon Duda fairly aggressively, he goes down. He's not platooning John. John Mayberry Jr. will just be the everyday uh, left fielder, and it will not be pretty on a number of levels. It would be kind of funny if uh, it, it wouldn't be funny if anybody got hurt. But if something were to happen, if Flores were hitting well, and you know Duda were unable to play for any reason, it would be kind of funny if the opening day shortstop wound up playing first base. 
Yeah. <laughs> we will get there. We will. We'll move from first base to second base. Do we need to discuss Daniel Murphy? No. We know what Daniel Murphy's going to do. There's, a, <laughs> there's no surprises here. Um, he'll hit somewhere between 270 and 300. He won't walk that much. He'll hit some doubles. He won't play a particularly good second base. He'll be worth between one and a half and three wins by your favorite war metric. And then we'll all move on with our lives. Probably 10 to 15 emails from you about Daniel Murphy's trade value later. And his qualifying offers if he... Qualifying offers if we get that far? Yeah, certainly. There will be plenty of Daniel Murphy discussion on the podcast. And has been in the past. Will be in the future. We'll leave it at that today and move to third base. David Wright, the third of our three bases. Another guy, just, we're all sort of, we say things like, and when we say we, I, I, I'll cast, not aspersions, but this is mostly me. I, I, I become fond of the phrase, sort of the table stakes for a good 2015 Mets season is David Wright hitting more like David Wright. And you're like, well, you know, he's on the wrong side of 30, had all those injuries last year. And then he fucking puts one over the batter's eye in St. Lucie by about, like, like no doubt over the batter's eye. Like, the batter's eye was in no danger of being hit by any flying projectiles. You're like, oh, yeah, he can do that. I don't remember offhand. I want to say it was off Manny Benuelos because I feel like every run the Mets have scored in spring training has been off Manny Benuelos. At least it feels like that. Many of them were. <laughs> A lot of them were. I don't remember offhand who he hit it off of, though, if it was even against the Braves. But you just see that, see him do that. It's like, oh, yeah, David Wright's going to be good this year. I mean, I hope he is. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, you know, regardless of the competition, it's nice to see the ball go that far. Yes. You know, and I'll... I'll I mean, I... guys don't really do that in BP. Some guys do. You got Seattle and Rodriguez take BP, so you know, but... Yes, I, I, I actually I was going to bring that up in the spring training review, and I didn't. How was that? That can be like a borderline religious experience, right? My only regret for for the listener is that I did not record the sound of it because I've it, my mic. It's di- I've, yeah, it's different. I'll it's a you, pick up on it. It's sort of a, you'll hear scouts talk about sort of the the sound the ball makes off the bat being just different with some guys. With Adderlin, it's different. It's just different. Yeah, you heard. You heard it moving through the air. And the only times you didn't was when it was going into the minor league parking lot and, and nearly hitting players' cars. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that 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 was that was something special. And uh, and I, you guys had given me the heads up to look for it, so I did. But it was there. Brandon Brocher's power too was. Uh, <laughs> he put one it, for, for anyone who's been to the complex. I never remember the numbers of the fields, but. There's one of the backfields has a very large batter's eye, uh, and next to it are, are trees. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a wooded area. <clears throat> and Brochure, I mean, this was just in BP, but he launched one that went, it, you know, it wasn't quite as impressive as what Wright did the other day. Um, 
but it was just to the left of the batter's eye, so, you know, left center, center. Uh, and it went in, like, more, it was closer to the top of the trees than the bottom when it went into the woods. Um, so there's another little takeaway from, from the trip. 80 raw is fun. It really is. I don't know if Brochure has it. I haven't seen it, but Keith Law sure thinks so. He also thinks Dominic Smith has 70 power, but that's another conversation. I will say, and I'm not, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I saw Dom Smith take BP in the same group as Adderlin Rodriguez, and, uh, yeah, it's not going to end well for him. Right, I'm not... I'm that's not, like that's like Brandon Nemo taking BP in the Futures game with a broken hand alongside like Byron Buxton and Christian Yelich. Right, I remember your reaction to that right afterwards. <laughs> We're like, oh, that's different too, but not in a good way. But now he's fine because Kevin Long has fixed him. Yeah, just the experience of like a hundred and hopefully a hundred and fifty plus games of a healthy David Wright. It's just always nice. I remember I think it was the first the first spring training game I watched, maybe a couple of weekends ago. There's just like someone tried to butt on him, he just like made the barehanded play, like he just like fall out of bed making. It's like, oh yeah, that's just like it's like comforting, it's familiar, it's like a glass of Ovaltine kind of play. Or a crack, a mug. I guess a mug of Ovaltine. And like, we're gonna have to live through the David Wright decline period. It's just something, as we all grow older, you know, death awaits us all, as is David Wright, Wright's decline period. But I just, if we can hold it off for another year or two, that would be nice. Make me feel a little bit better. I saw more gray hairs in the mirror today, so. <laughs> a lot of that might be Wednesday losing 3 0 to Wolves, but. Just any little bit to sort of like, you know, ward off the reminder of impending doom is good. And David Wright, you know, having a five war season, that's a good, that's a, that helps a little bit. Yeah, I don't think it's beyond him at this point. I'm, I'm feeling good about that. So, infield preview, first base covered, second base covered, third base covered. I think we're, oh, I feel like I'm forgetting something, Chris. What am I forgetting? I don't know. I don't think we've ever talked about it on the podcast before. <laughs> Addison Russell is probably not available. Yes, it's Shortstop Avenue Audio. One of their Mirai, a little bit pie in the sky. Maybe give Tulo a try. It's Shortstop Avenue Audio. Hey, Owings is one to admire. Just please don't stop at Kadire. Since they've got it all wrong, I've had to update the song for Shortstop Avenue Audio. All right, shortstop. Yeah, that's a position on the infield. So it seems less likely now, since Wilmer Flores has been raking recently, that Matt Reynolds can make a stealth challenge for the opening day shortstop position. Though he's one of the few guys not on the 40-man, and that's not like a middle reliever, that's still in camp after today's roster cuts that include Gabby Yanoa pouring one out. I actually already finished my drink, so I can't pour it out. I poured it out into my throat over the course of the first hour of this podcast. So I guess that counts. I will say I'm a little upset about that. I was hoping to get one more look either like yesterday or today before they sent him to minor league camp inevitably. But I have more photos than I've let on. Uh, they'll, they'll be on the internet shortly. As Those... many, uh, more or less than Ahmed Rosario, though. 
Uh, it's close. The, the, I have a lot of the two of them. Not together, but but yeah, they're, they're we're similar. lacking photos of both, so that's fine. Yeah. So Wilmer Flores, Chris. Wilmer Flores is the Mets opening day shortstop. And look, good on him. He's raking in spring training. He's hitting, you know, he's hitting bombs off guys that are comparable to Brad Penny. I feel like he gets like complimented for making good but not outstanding plays in the field too. It's like the the bar is so low. It's like, oh, like Wilmer Flores did a good thing. Like he didn't trip over his own feet fielding the ball slightly to his right. Yeah. Yeah, that happens. This is the world we live in. My feedback from Port St. Lucie, uh, and in year three of being there, for the first time, I saw a Mets player in Chipotle. Yes, it was Omar Flores. And he he was the first. There were. I, I, it's not a... It was like the, the things broke open. Then every yeah. time I went in there, there were there were players. But he uh, he looks younger in street clothes than he does in yeah. the uniform. Uh, look, I mean, all credit to Wilmer Flores. He has worked very hard to be a guy you still probably shouldn't play at shortstop. Which is still a step up from the guy that was probably going to be a major league first baseman two years ago. And now he's our major league shortstop. So I, don't know, I feel like he's another guy we've talked a ton about. I haven't even mentioned Ruben Tejada, who's going to make this team. He's been playing some third base. Which is really weird. Like him and Danny Mutton have been playing a lot of third base. But yeah, they're giving Matt Reynolds. I, I'd have to go back and look. And it doesn't mean anything because it's March 18th. But I, I would bet that Matt Reynolds has gotten more shortstop innings in spring training than Ruben Tata. Uh, yes. I'm, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I would agree. You said that like you were looking it up at the time, but that's fine too. No, no, I was I was looking at the sailing. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Reynolds will go to Vegas and you know be the first guy up if someone gets hurt. And yeah, sure, it's probably good for Tejada to learn a little third base too. Um, so assuming Tejada is the utility infielder, as it were, you know, backup middle infielder, which seems likely, and may may still play shortstop when John Neese is on the mound, as I was reminded of last week. Who would like, so we know, we did the outfield preview. We covered our five outfielders out there. We did the infield preview. We covered our four infielders there. We'll cover Wrecker and Darno next week with the catching preview. That leaves one bench spot. If it's not going to be Eric Campbell, and God, I wish it's not going to be Eric Campbell. Who do you think has a shot at it? Well, I brought up Pueyo specifically to De Podesta. As, as a topic of its own, or his own, I should say. And Still in camp? He is, and I think, you know... Uh, well, the problem is once they send him home from, send him from camp, they have to option him, and they can't option him, so they have to DFA him. Right. So, Or at least, I don't know if they technically are DFAing him or just exposing him to waivers, but... Right, uh, the nuances of outriding and assigning and all yeah, that. Yeah, sure, whatever. Fun stuff, right. But the... He has to go through waivers if he 
if he starts the year in Vegas. Um, so, you know, I pretty much the the piece has his, his full answer. Uh, I did not walk away from that thinking that he was a certainty to be gone, but I would say that, you know, if you kind of look at what he said, it probably indicates to me that he's not making the team. Um, but he's just, he's better than Eric Campbell. Right. And this is basically an infield question, because I kind of wanted to bring up Alex Castellanos here, who I think is maybe a better version of Campbell. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah. I don't really I, care about the 25th man spot, unless it involves needlessly exposing Cesar Pollo to waivers. <laughs> I mean, I think... Uh... Like Campbell was actually bad last year. Right, like he I was not he's... good. Like He didn't even have like Josh Satin's 2013. Right, no, no. I mean, he, he's overrated by Mets fans. Uh... People still only remember like the first forty at bats when he was hitting three thirty or whatever. He didn't. It's not where he finished. Right. Well, I think our season preview, the little graph I made for that. Hold on. I'm at now. I will. Is it like Y equals negative X kind of uh, performance month to month there? Uh, yeah, something like that. I, th- I think it was a cumulative uh, OPS or slash line or whatever. Yeah, Google season preview, Eric Campbell. It'll it'll be the first thing you see, and it's just kind of you know it, in his first few games, first ten games or so, everything's high, and it just kind of gradually goes down over the course of the season. And it, it's not like he wound up at uh, I don't know Eric Young Jr. levels, but but you know he he did not. Finish. Eric Young Jr. also probably shouldn't only play first base, and is very slow. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, there, there's yeah. Look, am I still still looking at my wounds from Josh Satin? Yes, a little bit. But there's a number of better options in camp than Eric Campbell for that 25th spot, including Alex Castellanos, who has impressed me as well. Danny Munoz looked good too. The one issue with that, and this has been a problem for him for a while, there was in a bat. I think he had in a bat in the game last weekend. The game on, what did I end up watching? The game on Saturday, I think? Yeah, Saturday. From the left side, too, which is, I think, I'd have to go look at the splits. But at least, I I like his swing from the left side better. Or have in the past. I think that's, I don't think that's um, unanimous among people I've talked to that have seen him. But he absolutely got like a dead red fastball bound the pipe. And he hit it, and it looked great coming off his bat. And yes, you know, St. Lucie's not an easy park to hit it out of especially this time of year, it went like 280 feet. I'm just like, oh, right, that's a problem with him. Like, he's really got a, there's just not as much power in that swing as it looks like. But he, other than that, he's looked pretty good. Phil Evans at third base has played a lot of third base and looked decent too in the few uh, call-ups from the, the step camp side of things. Probably not really in danger of making the, Major League roster is a 25th man, though. That's the problem. All these guys have been sent back to minor league camps. We're getting part of the spring training season where it's just like, we're going to try out a bunch of, like, potential seventh relievers are all going to pitch in this game. Right. And then half this game will be Johnny Manel catching. Who, uh... 
uh, he, he's generating a little buzz for himself. He is. Good for him. That's not for this week. No, it is not. We'll cover that next week. And now we've covered all the infielders. Francisco Lindor is probably not available. This has been Shortstop Avenue Audio, the Mariners' Brad Miller, a dollar per war killer, or merely just podcast filler for Shortstop Avenue Audio. Now, nothing will ruin the Muda like Flores to Murphy to Duda, and I really don't mean to be Ruda, but I'm tired of Shortstop Avenue Audio. So that's enough song for today. Wait, why didn't they just keep Jose? We'll be back next week anyway with more Shortstop Avenue Audio. So we can move on to your emails. Before we do emails, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 108. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast. Your SB Nation, New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. And join our Facebook group at Facebook.com backslash Amazing Avenue fans. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio and you listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com backslash Amazing Avenue. Or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Chris McShane. Find him on Twitter at Chris McShane. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails, one of which we've already answered. But you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And our first email is from Carrie. Hi, Jeff. That's it. Just hi, Jeff. Sorry, Chris. Uh. I know that club options are a real consideration, but isn't it getting super boring that everyone's talking about them as if they're on- the only reason new and heist is going to win the fourth outfielder lefty off the bench job. I'm no scout, obviously, but isn't he a better player than Dendecker at this point? Why isn't that the story? Also, when I heard about Wheeler's UCL, I felt sick to my stomach and later had a pounding, stressed headache. What's the most physically ill the Mets ever made you? Thanks, Carrie in New Orleans. Um, that's perfectly reasonable, Carrie. I mean, certainly it's an easy line for Mets brass to say, oh, we're going with Neuenheis over Dendecker because Dendecker has options. And not because, eh, Matt, you're not really a major leaguer. You know, it's kind of a, it's not a nice thing to say. And I think Dendecker will still have a a career of some sort as sort of a up and down fifth outfielder type. But hey, it's worth looking in to see if these adjustments Neuenheis has made are real. Um, he was a guy that I've talked about this a little bit way back. I think when Nunez was struggling at the major league level, but because of his kind of odd past the majors, he never got a lot of triple A time. A guy that, you know, Nunez, that kind of profile could use seeing triple A lefties or triple A pitching in, in general. Those like 45 breaking balls, that kind of stuff. And you really didn't get to see it because he got hurt. Uh, when he first ended up in Buffalo, back when, you know, Buffalo was a Mets affiliate. And then 
you expected him. This would have been what, 2012 to get some AAA time then, but Andres Torres got hurt opening day. So he came up, you know, hit well to begin with, though a lot of that was Babbitt fueled. And then it kind of sort of struggled, at least up until last year, you know, so the second half of 2012, most of 2013 to really sort of find his stride at the major league level. Um, and he'll probably never be, I know he's been good in the spring. He'll probably never be really playable against lefties. But yes, for your fourth outfielder lefty off the bench, Nguyen Heis, better than Dendecker. And I think at least a good defender at this point, if not better. So the most physically ill the Mets have ever made you, Chris. I have a strange feeling we're going to have the same answer here, but go ahead. Uh, last day of 2007. Really? Okay, that that's actually not my answer. Yeah, just, I, I mean, I was there. It went so poorly. <laughs> Last day of 2007, I don't, the wheels came off so quickly. And then 2008, 2007 had already prepared me for it. Right. Well, I agree with that on the, uh, yeah. The last day of 2008 was, uh, I don't know. The edge had been taken off. For me, it's, uh, game seven of the NLCS 2006. Yeah. That, I mean, that would probably be runner up. I was there for that too. I was there. Three years in a row as the season ended <laughs> on a bad note. Right. Maybe it's you. It might be. Uh, it was just, I've, I've told the story before. I wrote a very long uh, post about it on my old blog, which I also, I think, uh, at some point posted as a fan post on Amazing Avenue. Actually, one of the favorite things I've written, so it's easy enough to find. You can search it down. Uh, search it. Search it down. You can run it down. Search it, Search for it and find it or run it down. Easily on the internet, um, very famously, I I, jo- I don't know how serious it was at the time. My wife almost broke up with me after that game because I was so completely inconsolable. <laughs> like she she just couldn't handle the fact that I just like I could not respond to stimuli at that point. Yeah. It just literally like broke me inside deeply. Yeah, no, I mean, I was I remember leaving the upper deck that night, and I am certainly not uh, of the mindset that that men can't cry but i never was tempted to cry over baseball uh until i saw a kid who was probably 10 or 11 or 12 years old crying pretty considerably (laughs) walking down the ramps i couldn't look at him it it, like actually broke something inside of me and so i couldn't i couldn't cry it's just like i couldn't cry over the game i just i was just emotionally dead inside afterwards yeah I think that might be part of the reason why even the last day of 2007, I think because of the way it happened, I was sitting in a bar near my old apartment that I would go to. I knew the bartender there. I would go there most Sundays. You know, I didn't have SNY at the time, so I'd watch, watch a Mets game, whatever. And it was some, well, it would have been, yeah, it would have been like a football Sunday. So I got to put the game up for me in the corner. I'm sitting there, drinking my whiskey. Watching it in the corner. I think it was, it might have been, it, it might have been the first batter. Tom Glavin was pitching to Hanley Ramirez. And I have this distinct memory. I can go back and look at the stuff on baseball reference, but I'm not going to. There was a 3-2 pitch. And he, he threw it, you know, to one of those little Tom Glavin, like two seamers that ran six inches off the plate. He didn't get the call for strike three. And Ramirez walked. I'm like, oh fuck, we're going to get killed. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. 
I mean, that you could just chalk that up to the normal Mets fan cynicism that was well ingrained in me at that time. But for whatever reason, I like had immediately after that happened, mentally prepared myself for crushing defeat. Yeah, and I, and I uh, almost got sense. back into it. I think I may have. I stuck around at the bar. I may have jumped out of my seat a little bit when Ramon Castro almost hit that grand slam. Yeah. Later in the game, but just it never. Yeah, I was, I was just better prepared for that than I was game seven. Cause I really thought they were going to win game seven. Right. Well, I mean, it was just I. I they were going of... against Jeff Supan. Right. And you have, you know, one of the the probably the highest single moment in Mets history since at least 2000, but maybe even going back to 86, you know, and, and uh, to go from that high to losing, I, I get that. 2007 just broke me more. I was off for, for a week, not off from work, but just, you know, like, It'd be a better story if you just like took a week off from work afterwards. <laughs> it's like wandered the desert. Our next email is from Ben. Ben actually tweeted me. I assume he's a regular listener to ask for the email to send this to, even though I say it every week on the podcast. This podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And then titles his email. You better read this on the air. Ben, I read every email on the air. I read every email word for word. Unless I stumble over some words or people write in with something slanderous about Jeff Wilpon. And then I sort of paraphrase or gloss over it. But here's his email. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi, Jeffrey. I'm testing you to see if you really do read these emails word for word. Actually, read the emails word for word. See, I do stuff like that sometimes, Ben. You get the gist of it, though. As I said on Twitter, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Travis Darnell. He finished Again, we're doing the catcher preview next week. He finished strong last year, and it seems to me like I also sometimes editorialize during the emails, but you can usually tell when I'm doing that. He finished strong last year, and it seems to me like people have more or less taken for granted they will continue to produce that level next year. Or this year, I suppose, in this case. I'm not sure why, but something about him makes me nervous. What's your sense on him? What do you think the front office thinks of him? Is Plaw being kept around with the thought that TDA might be a total bust? Yours truly in mono- monotone delivery, Ben C. That's a shot at me or not. I'm many I things, can, but I can tell. I can be I can be monotone at times, certainly. I have a certain cadence about me. Um there are reasons there are, which we will get into next week when we do the catching preview in more depth. There are certainly reasons to be uh wary about Travis Arno's two thousand fifteen season. I don't think there's so much with the bat. And yes, see, we're, we're basically hanging our hat on a good second half. But, you know, sometimes guys just look different. The swings looked good to me in the spring. I think he'll hit. Um, so the concerns, the reasonable concerns with TDA are, you know, what's his defense like behind the plate? You know, is a pass ball issue continue to be an issue? Do the, does his somewhat mediocre catch and throw numbers continue to be somewhat mediocre? He's got a good arm. You know, is that a, is was last year really a meaningful sample size in terms of like caught ceiling percentage? You know, we know he's a good framer, especially at stealing the low strike. Um, and can he just get through another full season healthy? You know, that's got to be the other concern, and that's the reason Ploiecki's still around because Darno is a fairly scary. Injury history, even though most of the things were 
flukish. Um, and really past Travis Darnot. So here's, here's the thing. The second best catching prospect in the Mets system behind Kevin Plowecki is 17 year old Ali Sanchez or 18. I guess he, he might be 18 now, but Ali Sanchez, who has not come stateside yet. And I'll go so far, so far as to say now with Cam Marin out of the system, I can't even project a single catcher in the Mets system, you know, past like guys like Manel and Wrecker, obviously, as a third catcher at the major level. It's not good. So that's why Ploiecki's around, because if Travis Darno gets hurt, Kevin Ploiecki's really their only hope of sort of ca- cobbling together average catcher production on both sides of the ball. But Chris, you may or may not be on for the catching preview next week. So you want some thoughts about Travis Darno out there now? Uh, I think you pretty much touched on all of it. I, the, the track record with the bat has always been good. And I think the development he made last year in terms of getting adjusted to the big leagues upon, you know, especially after he went back down to Vegas and then came back to the big leagues for good for the rest of the year. I, I, you know, I'm not saying he is guaranteed to produce at the level he did from the day he got back until the end of the season, but I think it'll be closer to that than what we saw before. Um, and if I was going to bring up anything as a concern, it would primarily be injury. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think you pretty much covered it. Um, and with Pulowiecki, it's not – I don't think you keep him around just uh, because you, you're afraid of, of what's happening with Darno. His stock rose a lot last year, but that – and, you know, he's he's a good prospect, but that doesn't necessarily mean other teams saw him as, you know, somebody that they had to target and, and try to acquire in a trade. He's so, not the centerpiece of a Troy Tulowitzki deal. Right. I mean – I don't know if that would ever be the case, but, but yeah, I think there's that element to it as well that, you know, the team wasn't going to come and give the Mets something that they really needed in the short term, uh, you know, that would make them roll the dice on Darno's health and ability to remain a major league, you know, major league bat. So yeah, I, I think that all sums it up fairly well with the two of them. Good. We can move on to our last email then. And that is from Nate. And because this podcast recognizes no off-season for obscure Mets minor league prospect questions, Nate has a question about Miller Diaz, Signor Paternostro. Unless I missed it, don't believe I've heard you wax poetic on Miller Diaz as of yet. This was a name I'm realizing as I'm reading this email. This is one of the parts where I editorialize that when I was reading it at work today, I thought, you know, I should find my notebook with my notes on Miller Diaz from last year and have that in front of me when I answered this email. I did none of that. So I literally walked in the door, poured myself a drink, ate a donut, and fired up this uh, podcast recording machine. Anyway, this was a name I was unfamiliar with, despite his being in the Mets system since 2009. Until I saw John Sickles' organizational ranking that awarded Diaz a C-plus prospect grade, alongside the likes of Morris, Reynolds, Gzelman, Alvarez, et al. 
apologies if this is territory you've covered before. I don't think I really specifically talked about Miller Diaz on the podcast. Probably a reason for that. But would appreciate a brief rundown on the Caracas native. Also, over-under on Scott Rice's innings total with the Mets this year. Grazie, Nate. Oh, did I did I do something convenient? Like, I had started writing up some of my notes into my actual... Yeah, I don't think I have an updated top 41 on this, do I? Uh, I don't know where that notebook with my Miller Diaz notes. Ooh, do I have a... Hang on, I'm going to see if... I may have an old draft of a piece on Miller Diaz I never actually finished for the site. Because I saw him in Savannah this year. Um, For context. Uh, He pitched in one of the three games I saw. I don't remember what the order was. I also Octavio Acosta and Rob Whalen. Octavio Acosta for the third time at the second level. Could not get enough of Octavio Acosta in 2014. Uh, so Miller Diaz, I don't dislike Miller Diaz, I guess. I saw him in Brooklyn in 2013. Um, he wasn't in the greatest shape in the world. That was a little better last year. But he didn't quite have the same top-end velocity on the fastball. So I sort of tap dance to try to find this draft that may or may not exist. I feel like he was more in 90 to 92 last year, more 92, 94 in Brooklyn. I mean, long term, he's he's one of those guys that I sort of put in the category of in a seventh inning someday. Um, there's a lot of those guys, and the Mets have some of the system a lot higher than a ball, and he's not as young for the level as you might think. Because uh, he really, I get the impression he would have made Savannah in 2013 over uh, 2014 if he had come to camp in slightly better shape in 2013. It's amazing you does not want to load for me. <laughs> um, I did notice the changeup was better in 2014 over 2013. The breaking ball is still a little slurvy. Um... But yeah, he's a guy that will start up until probably double A. He's got enough stuff in there to get uh, Florida State League hitters out, certainly. And then he'll go the, the way of, like, you know, Lara, Hansel Robles. Um, but, you know, he's a guy that could pitch in a major league bullpen someday, maybe, but probably not. You know, I don't have... Because my computer that had my full prospect list on it died, I couldn't tell you exactly where I had him on my main list, but I'm going to guess it was like in the 40 to 50 range. Uh, did you get to see Miller Diaz at all on the minor league side of things? Uh, not I don't think we have it. Yeah, I don't think we have any pictures of him. So, well, I think I, I think I might have gotten one. There you go. So we got a picture of Miller Diaz or two. But yeah, the only thing I. I don't think I even saw him throw a bullpen. Yeah. Um, the photos will tell the story, but I think I think I saw him out there, you know, uh, just having a catch, long tossing that that sort of thing, um, and maybe doing some drills. There's some really good. There's a really funny photo of uh, Giselman where he's, you know, they're doing a, a fielding bunts drill, and uh, and he's just. I mean, they're 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 doing it, but they're having fun with it at the same time. So he's just making this stupid, goofy face, uh, 
which I appreciate. But but yeah, I think there might be a usable photo of Miller Diaz in the in the two thousand plus <laughs> some, somewhere. Scott Rice will throw more innings for the two thousand fourteen Mets than I want to see, and certainly more innings for 2014, 15, 2015 Mets. He probably threw more in the two thousand fourteen Mets than I wanted to see too. But certainly more than the 2015 Mets than I wanted to see, and a lot more, vastly more against right-handed pitching. On the 2015 Mets, or right-handed hitting. I'm just completely running out of steam. You're going to see a lot of Scott Rice, and it's going to be too much. Probably. That's what I got. Yeah, I mean, if we're setting an over-under on innings... Uh... 23 and a third. Yeah, that's pretty good. All right. You may not even make this team, but Terry's got to have two lefties, and there's not a lot of lefties. I'm still holding out hope Darren Gorski will somehow get a look at some point. Because why not? Those are your emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Chris, IFK Gothenburg is in the semifinals of the Svenska Kupen. Since we adopted them as the official soccer team of this podcast, they've scored 13 goals, allowed none. This is kind of insane. I don't know what to do with this kind of power. They beat Helsingborg IF 2-0 this past weekend. Got an early goal from their Wunderkind or whatever the Swedish word is for Wunderkind. I imagine it sounds sort of like Wunderkind. <laughs> Gustav Per Fredrik Engvall, who is not a 16th century painter, though it does sound like it. He's an 18-year-old striker who has been capped for uh, Sweden at all the youth levels. So he got his first cap for the under-21s. He was an 18-year-old. And for Gothenburg, since 2012, though he started sporadically, scored eight goals and 23 appearances. Had a big early goal. Got a start. In a big game in the quarterfinals of the Svenska Kupen. And Gothenburg rode it out into the semis. Where they will face uh, BK Haken in a Gothenburg derby. Very exciting this Saturday. 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 4 p.m. Swedish Standard Time. And other good news, Malmo FF who I guess will be considered, I don't know if they're favorites, but they won the Elsvenskin last year. Got knocked out by Ourobro SK. So the path is open to a Svenska Cup and title. That Gothenburg Derby, that's that that's serious business. Reminds me of uh, Sheffield Wednesday against Sheffield United in the FA Cup semifinals in a uh, 1993. Although, unlike that one, they actually they will have this one in Gothenburg. They moved the 93 semifinal to Wembley because basically the entire city of Sheffield wanted to go. We also have an update. We talked a little bit last week about apparently it's Lasa Vibe. Not Lasa Vibe, but as anyone that listens to this podcast knows, I can't pronounce. English names properly, why would I do Swedish ones or Danish ones in this case? <laughs> Correctly. That's a report from our man on the ground in Gothenburg, Anders. Lasse Vibe 
again selected for the national team for upcoming friendlies against France and you guys. I assume he means the United States. So I may have to find a bar showing Denmark against the U.S. to watch Las of eBay while wearing my FK Gothenburg shirt that Anders also sent me. Because, yes, I'm that much of a soccer hipster that I will do that. <laughs> I will not blink an eye and do that. I hope he gets a start over Nicholas Bettner. That's it. That's all I got. But if you do want to watch along, IFK Gothenburg against BK Hacken. I may watch it this week because I don't think. Wednesday, Rotherham might make TV. The first match did. I haven't really looked into it. And our man Patty from the you know, the head of the New York Owls is in on vacation anyway, so I wasn't going to get down to the city to watch it. But assuming there's not a Rotherham Wednesday stream, so I haven't been able to watch anything since their FA Cup game with Manchester City, I will definitely be watching uh, IFK Gothenburg against BK Hacken. You gotta love a guy. You gotta love a local derby for like a cup final, for a spot in a cup final. That's just that's good no matter what country it's in. Sure, as usual, everyone. I have no idea what's going on right now. It's okay, Brian, who acquitted himself well last week in his podcast debut, did yes. get a nice nice shot at me. He's like asking me if if the people like request more information about this, and they don't clearly. <laughs> then I'm gonna give it to you. I feel like we're riding a wave now. That's three wins in three, and they've outscored their opponents 13-0. There's magic happening here. In other magical things, for some reason, people keep asking me to do things related to the Mets, like high-profile things. So May 28th, I will be in the uh, the Mets edition of Pitch Talks at uh, BB King's in Times Square. I should pull up the actual info for that because that's been like officially announced now. I'm on a poster and everything. I'm sure that poster will have more information, hopefully. As he scrambles. Yes. So Thursday, May 28th, doors at 6, showtime at 7.30. BB King's Blues Club and Grill on West 42nd Street in Manhattan Times Square, moderated by Mike Puma of the New York Post, featuring myself, Mark Craig, Anthony DeComo, Emma Spann, Darren Meenan of the Seven Line, and Matt Cerrone. That's quite the crew. It is. I have no idea how this is going to go. I'm going to tell stories. We'll probably go out for cocktails afterwards somewhere. So I encourage you to go. Tickets go on sale on Friday. So the last, well, the last one was the first one, um, the and the post show cocktails or beers, really, uh, or beer culture. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. We can definitely do that. Yeah, but yeah, I'll be there. Eric might. No, he's not going to be there. No, he might be. Yeah, he's not going to be there. Uh, No, he's not. He's not going to be there. I'm trying to get everybody's hopes up. Maybe I'll find a 2GS and bring it, like I've been saying. I'll do <laughs> well, Mark Mark Craig's going to be there, so he would appreciate that most of all. Since I think he started the whole Robot Eric Simon thing. Right, well, he, he certainly started it in the public. 
Right, yeah, we've been making those jokes for years. <laughs> so yeah, my face is on a poster outside a blues bar. I can cross that off the bucket list, too, I guess. So that thing is happening. Also happening, I'll plug it again, our live show, our second live show at Foley's April 11th. We'll probably start around 3 p.m., giving me time to fumble around, get things going, record a podcast, and uh, have a few beers and watch the Mets game that evening. I think they have a 7 p.m. Uh, I have no idea who they're playing. It's the thing I could have looked up. I think it's Atlanta that weekend. All right, so yeah, game against the Braves, which will all be harrowing, and we'll definitely need beer for us the game at Turner Field. One of the last ones, really. Or one of the few remaining. I shouldn't say one of the last ones. It's one of the few remaining games at Turner Field that the Mets will have to go through. Yep. 7, thank, seven thank 10 p.m. First pitch. Yeah, you have a nice little buffer. Has, has delved into the real life ramifications of their new stadium, but I think he's just upset that they're not going to get to play the Mets there anymore. <laughs> Um, I will say we were going to have a Braves preview this week, but I figured the podcast was already going to run long, given how much we had to cover, so we'll bump it uh, Ben Deronio to next week, along with a Marlins preview, hopefully, because we're not going to talk that much about catchers. I'll make a lot of jokes about... Well, not jokes. I will once again express my appreciation for Anthony Records' posterior. I'll talk a little bit about how more on Kevin Floki than anybody else. We'll try to further assuage Ben and others' doubts about Travis Darnell. And really, at this point, hopefully that's all we'll be talking about, because at this point in the spring, no news is good news, really. And there was a lot of news this week, Chris. Yeah. And the only good news was related to Swedish soccer. I've already threatened that if Mets pitchers keep getting hurt. I will turn this only into a Swedish soccer, Swedish soccer and Sheffield Wednesday podcast, <laughs> which may make it indistinguishable from what it is now. I don't know. But there's only one way to find out. You'll have to tune in next week for another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio. <laughs> <laughs>